This uh, talk this morning is titled, Whatever Arises, Ceases. We'll come back to that in a minute. A friend of mine, in fact, the, the lady who edited my book, uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs, wrote to me a year or so ago and said that it had suddenly struck her that despite their great antiquity, Buddhism, Christianity, might actually only just be beginning in the relation to our short span of life on earth we think of 2,000 years as a very long time. But that, of course, is entirely relative. Perhaps, and this is a point argued uh, by some Christian theologians as well, that we may only now be, as it were, arriving at the most appropriate conditions under which the Dhamma can flourish not simply as a religion, which of course it has, that's benefited innumerable people, but as a way of life that somehow speaks and speaks to and offers practices, philosophies that can be embraced and embodied perhaps more widely now than ever before. And perhaps part of that process might entail a rupture with the traditional religious forms and that might be painful and there might be quite some resistance to that. In fact, there is. But it might be more of a sort of birth pang than the failure of something. The Italian philosopher Gianni Vattimo, who is probably not very well known in America, Um, has suggested that the process of secularization is not the failure of Christianity, but its triumph. In other words, the self-emptying of God through the crucified Jesus is a giving away of any claim to ultimacy or transcendence and a total embrace of the secular world. Likewise, in more recent uh, history, at least in terms of our times, that of the Second World War, one of the great religious thinkers, religious thinkers, is um, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was... uh, executed by the Nazis just before the end of the war. And in his letters from prison, he likewise comes up with this idea of secular religion, secular Christianity, a Christianity that is no longer anything to do with the churches, but is somehow a total and unconditional embrace of the conditions of our seculum. So I admit that I am influenced in some of these ideas by non-Buddhist sources, but that could also be 
a feature of our, our entire secular approach. And as I go back to the, the sources of Buddhist tradition that we find in the Pali Canon and elsewhere, I'm endlessly uh, struck by the, uh, the extraordinarily secular insights of the Buddha. But also, I'm struck by how the Buddha is represented as very often a very secular person, a person of his time, but someone who shies away from um, expressions of over-religiosity. In fact, one of the, uh, the, the legacies of that religiosity is already implicit in using the word the Buddha. Now, when you go into the canon, the Buddha is never called the Buddha. That word just doesn't occur. It's the way that we, in the West, and perhaps in other Buddhist traditions, have chosen to refer to him, but it's an epithet. It's uh, the awakened one. At the time, in many passages in the Pali Canon, he is referred to as Bo Gautama, Bo Gautama, which means simply Mr. Gautama, Mr. It's not an um, honorific term at all. If you look it up in the Pali Dictionary, you find another expression, Bo Vardin, B-H-O, Vardin, as in Terra Vardin. Bo Vardin means... Uh, someone who uses the term bull. And that is a synonym for a Brahmin, a priest. A priest, at least from the Buddhist perspective, is um, someone who in that culture would refer rather demeaningly to others as Mr. Bull Vardin, someone who says Mr. And I don't think it's accidental that the Buddhist tradition, or the Buddha himself, I've done it, you see, Mr. Gautama himself, <laughs> was actually quite consciously taking on an epithet, Mr., that has no sense of reverend, venerable, the blessed one. Another term used is Bhagawant, which again is translated in English by this rather, to me, cloyingly religious term, the blessed one. But actually, Bhagawant is just an honorific, a term of respect for a teacher. Bhagawan Rajneesh, more recently, it's the same word. But you can see how the, the tonality of, reli of religion and religious feeling slips in unawares. And yet you go back to the source texts, and you find that actually it's not there. And yet we perpetuate it. So it's very difficult, I think, if we are talking about Buddhism or the Dhamma, to free ourselves from the habit of religious language. And I think one of the great challenges of our time is to find a voice that... Um, 
is both appropriate for our own time, also though that somehow touches back into the earliest source materials we have that reflects what was going on then too. Just try, for example, to picture how Mr. Gautama and his followers would have presented themselves or behaved in the period in 4th century BC India. Yes, they would have been wearing what we would call monastic robes. They would have had shaven heads. But then so would any number of people who had opted out of mainstream society to pursue a life of the mind, many of whom actually did not embrace um, religious or spiritual practices at all, but were closer to philosophers, um, people just inquiring into the nature of things. That was the way they dressed. Now it's become the uniform of a monk or a nun. Even the words monk and nun are suspect. The words in Pali, bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, simply mean beggar or beggaress. <laughs> I suppose if that exists. And that's a term that, again, is not exclusive to the Buddhist tradition. You find it already in the Upanishads. These were people who had, uh, 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 were pursuing what we would call a life of the mind. And this was how they survived, by begging alms from those who were working. And at that time in the northern Gangetic culture, had sufficient surplus to support them. Now it's been turned into a religious institution of monks and nuns. And that, I think, again, betrays in a way um, what was occurring at that time and also, I feel, adopts unthinkingly a kind of religious vocabulary to describe who they are and what they do. I mean, you could say the same thing about Jesus and his fishermen around the Lake of Galilee. There's a long jump from that to the Vatican and the Popes. <laughs> it's, it's a similar move. So I feel it might be helpful um, to try to recover something of that early simplicity uh, the radical nature of those teachings and how very often their radicality lies in their parting company with what was considered to be religious at that time too. So I feel in some ways the secularization of the Dhamma is not as it were what some might consider its, you know, its, uh, its last gasp of breath but actually it's a recovery of what may have been one of the uh, factors that inspired it and moved it at its very beginnings. An example of how Mr. Gautama um, moved away from the questions of religion 
is found in those questions he refused to answer. There are 10 of them, sometimes 14. Does the universe have a beginning? Does it not have a beginning? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Are the mind and the body the same? Are the mind and the body different? Does one exist after death? Does one not exist after death? Or both or neither? These are, in a way, the big questions that traditionally it's been the business of religions to give answers to. Again, this often is about consoling people, explaining that this brief, often painful life on earth is one that is redeemed in some sense by heaven after death or the nasty people will get punished in eternal fires or theories of rebirth and karma and so on that give you a sense that there's much more than this worldly existence that is so fraught with pain and suffering. To all of these questions, Mr. Gautama said, in common parlance, don't go there. That's not what I'm interested in at all. It's to pursue such questions, he famously said, was like a man who's been shot by a poison arrow and won't let anyone remove that arrow until he knows the, the name of the person who shot it, what kind of bow it was, whether the feather on the arrow shaft was that of a crow or a peacock or a stork or a vulture, which is, of course, the how many angels are there on the tip of a needle sort of question. And, of course, Buddhism has paradoxically gone down that very track. Uh, the, the questions that Mr. Gautama refused to address have been addressed in abundance by every Buddhist school. So there's a clear tension here, if not an actual contradiction, between what are very uh, distinctive and original uh, positions that Mr. Gautama took vis-à-vis -vis these kinds of big religious questions and the institutions that have been set up in his name. And I'm sure we can say the same about the Christian tradition as well. So in, with this metaphor of the arrow, the point, of course, is that what matters is not who fired the arrow or whether it was a crow's feather that was in the arrow shaft, but removing the arrow. In other words, there is something to be done which has, as it were, a considerable urgency here and now because you're at risk of, of dying. This, I think, emphasizes something that we do really need to keep coming back to, namely that this practice is therapeutic, and I don't mean that in the sense of, of psychotherapeutic, but therapeutic in the sense of healing. Mr. Gautama presents himself as a physician, remember, his dharma as a kind of medical treatment, and his community as nursing staff, sounds a bit odd, but what it means is people who somehow support you in that process of your own 
understanding and healing. And the teaching is also pragmatic uh, in the sense that it is not something to believe in, it is something to do. And again, this is, has many echoes with, say for example, the, uh, the teachings and the practices of the early followers of Epicurus or the Stoics, schools that were that flourished for hundreds of years. These schools, again, started just around the same time as Mr. Gautama's teaching was being introduced in India, and they flourished for hundreds of years until they were suppressed by the Catholic Church in the 6th century AD. Now, a good example of Mr. Gautama's um, a position about past and future lives and so on is found at the conclusion of his uh, discourse to the Kalama people. We may come back to this. But at the end of the text he says, uh, When Kalamas, a disciple has made his mind free of enmity, free, free of ill will, he has won four assurances in this life. In the first two, the first assurance is this. If there is another world, and if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in a heavenly world. The second assurance is this. If there is no other world, and if good and bad deeds do not bear fruit and yield results, still, right here, in this very life, I live happily, free of enmity and ill will. Now, it's true that this passage only occurs once, and it's also true that there are numerous other passages throughout the canon where there is an assumption, a very explicit assumption, that the path is one that continues over many lifetimes and that your actions bear fruit not now but in future lives. That's uh, something that is evidently there in the text. But the passages that somehow go against the standard worldview of the time strike me as being those that are certainly original to Mr. Gautama, to the Buddha, and perhaps those that represent his most radical approach. And as we continue through the week, I'll be citing a number of texts that I feel are spoken very much in this tone and in this voice. And that's the perhaps the secular strand, the secular voice that I feel we might recover. In some ways I feel the Dhamma needs to be liberated from the certainties of Buddhism. The Dhamma recovered as a praxis, uh, something that you can test and do and work out for yourself, 
rather than something that embodies particular uh, doctrines, dogmas, beliefs, many of which are the common uh, legacy of the classical Indian worldview. In some ways, I feel, for the Dharma to thrive, it has to shed its Indian legacy and find a voice, find a way of uh, expressing and articulating itself that speaks directly to the conditions of our world and our time. And I'd like to single out just a couple of points that I feel are particularly problematic uh, in this regard. One is the doctrine of reincarnation, the doctrine of having had infinite past and potentially infinite future lives, driven by actions committed in those past lives and which will have effect ad infinitum unless we can break ourselves free from the cycle of birth and death itself, which, remember, is the goal not just of traditional Buddhism, but it's the, the goal of the entire Indian religious culture. That's what the Jains want to do. It's what the Brahmins want to do. And in a way, as Buddhism became an Indian religion, it was represented as just another competing strategy to achieve that same goal. In other words, it, was, um, uh, I, it, was, it became contained and defined within the project of Indian classical religion. But the features of the Dhamma that strike me as the most liberating and also the most likely to have been taught by Siddhartha Gautama are those elements that we cannot derive from either Jainism or Brahmanism, the Upanishads. And I'm just going to briefly mention them now, but as we go through the rest of the week, I'll expand on each one. The first is the teaching of conditioned arising, sometimes translated as dependent origination, sometimes translated as co-conditioned emergence. There's many, many variants. It's paticca samuppada. Sariputta, one of the Buddha's main disciples, said, the one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising, and the one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma. They're the same. And this, I think, is, lies at the very core of what Mr. Gautama taught, conditioned arising. But we're going to come back to that over the next days. The second point is the teaching on what are usually called the Four Noble Truths. I prefer to call these the Four Noble Tasks and to think of them not as truths, in other words, things you can believe or disbelieve, but rather as tasks that you are invited to perform and realize. And as tasks, they are the embracing of dukkha, 
the letting go of grasping, the experiencing of the stopping of grasping, and the cultivation of a way of life, the Eightfold Path. But we'll come back to that. The third point that seems to me distinctive and original and radical is the practice of mindfulness, of mindful attention or mindful awareness. In other words, a meditation that is not concerned with deep introspective absorption that leads you to ultimately union with God or to, in the Jain tradition, absorption into the inactive Atman that is then freed from all karma, but rather a meditation that does the very opposite, that begins to pay close and sustained attention to the phenomenal world itself. It's a complete reversal of the standard Indian practices. Paying attention to your breath, to your body, to your feelings, to your mental states, and to whatever is going on. And training yourself to heighten that uh, close awareness of life itself with both a stillness focus and a sharpness and clarity of perception. And as we'll see, it's not just about attaining some pleasant state of mind, a detached frame of mind. It's also what is the foundation for making moral and ethical choices. It gives you a space, a gap, an ability to live from another perspective in this world one that is not conditioned by greed or hatred or confusion. So there my... Oh, and the fourth one, sorry. The fourth one is the emphasis on self-reliance. The emphasis, as the Buddha says at the very end of his life, to become islands or lamps to yourself. Or as I mentioned yesterday, the idea of becoming independent of others in the teaching and the practice. And that too, I think, is a very uh, important departure from a society at his time which was bound by your duty in terms of your caste and your devotion to the authority of the priesthood. So all of the, these four uh, features, I feel, are what... Uh, or let's say are sufficient to establish the foundation for um, a way of life that embraces and addresses all aspects of our humanity. We don't need any other superstructures of belief or dogma in order to live and practice the Dharma in an authentic way. So let's go back now to the title of this talk, Whatever Arises, Ceases. And this, I feel, will lead us quite naturally into these four points that I've just outlined. 
whatever arises ceases, in some ways is a kind of slogan of the early community. We first hear it, not from the mouth of the Buddha, but from one of the five ascetics, a man called Kondanya, who was the first person to grasp what Mr. Gautama was saying. They are the very last words of the very first discourse called the turning of the wheel of Dhamma that Mr. Gautama gave in the deer park in Isipatana or Sanat uh, two and a half thousand years ago in which he presents these four tasks, declares that he has accomplished these four tasks, maintains that it was only when he'd done this when he'd done all of this, embraced dukkha, let go of craving, experienced it stopping and created a path, that he could consider himself to be fully awake. And then, at the end of the text, it says that the five delighted in what he'd said, and while he was speaking, the stainless Dhamma eye arose in Kondanya, who then uttered the words, Yam kinchi samudayam dhammang tam sabang nirodam dhammang. And for once, we can say that in English much more economically. <laughs> Whatever arises, ceases. A few months later, when the, the small, earliest community at Deer Park found its way to the biggest town of that day, the capital of Magadha, called Rajagaha. There was a well-known Brahmin ascetic called Sariputta, and he noticed one of the Deer Park ascetics in Rajagaha, was rather struck by his demeanor, asked him what his teacher taught, and this man, who was called Asaji, uh, summarized it for him, and then Sariputta said, Whatever arises, ceases. And in other words, that becomes a, uh, an indicator of having the Dharma eye opened, which means, in another phrase, that they enter the stream. They've understood ex what this teaching is about and, and now have embarked on its practice. <coughs> Now that all might sound a little puzzling because after all, whatever arises ceases in some ways is no more remarkable than saying whatever goes up comes down. Why was it chosen as such a key um, utterance? Well, let's just think about it. Think of a wave um, on the ocean. Think of how it arises and ceases. Think of the wave as it breaks on the shore. How that arises, it spreads out along the sand, a film or sheen of water spreads, and then it gets to a point and it pauses and it retreats. 
it arises up the, up the beach and ceases and falls back. It's a very primary rhythm of, as we now know, the effect of the moon on the earth and the tides and so on and so forth. More close to home, it strikes me that whatever arises ceases describes every breath we take. That as we breathe in, the breath arises, it pauses, we release the breath, or let's say the breath is released, and it ceases, it goes out of our body, there's another pause, and then it arises again, and it pauses, and it ceases, and then it arises. And I find it actually quite helpful in meditation to, to sometimes recite that phrase as we breathe. Whatever arises, ceases. Whatever arises, ceases. And this, of course, is also, we're not talking of the, the oceans and the waves now, we're talking of our own tidal rhythm, as it were, the rhythm of our own life, which is that which starts our existence the moment after we have left our mother's womb. We draw our first breath and that sets in motion the series of breaths that will continue until finally at the end of our life we will breathe out but we won't breathe in again. So when we become aware of the breath we're becoming aware of the primal rhythm of our life and we're also becoming aware of our primary relationship which, with what is not me, the environment, the biosphere, the oxygen that we need to draw in order to nourish our blood and our brain and our organism. There's something very, very fundamental there. We could extend the same idea to the heartbeat. The, the, the incessant expansion and contraction of the valves, the ventricles that pump the blood around the body, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. But perhaps it's the breath that's the, the key here, I feel. And the importance of breath meditation, anapanasati, awareness of the breathing, is, as we know, if we've done a vipassana retreat or any kind of Buddhist meditation in any tradition, it almost invariably returns or starts, begins with breathing. There's a passage in the Sanyutta Nikaya, uh, it's chapter 54, section 11, in which um, the Buddha advises his uh, followers 
um, as to how they should answer the question that presumably people kept asking. What does he do during the rains retreat? The, what, what does the Buddha do? What does Mr. Gautama do when he meditates during the summer rains, which was the period of reflection and contemplation and teaching um, in the community at that time? And the answer, in other words, how he advises them, is to say, during the rains residence, he generally dwells in contemplation through mindfulness of breathing. And then the Buddha says, if one could truly say of anything, this is a noble dwelling, this is a divine dwelling, or we might say a sacred dwelling, this is a Tathagata's dwelling, it is of concentration through mindfulness of breathing that one could truly say this. Now I suspect at the time um, people might have had the idea that the Buddha was someone who was engaged in some deep, perhaps esoteric meditation practice. And yet what he wants to make entirely clear to anybody who's interested in what he does in his practice is to affirm the fact that he dwells in his breath. And he calls it a, a, a Brahma Vihara, a divine dwelling. The same word as he uses also to describe love, compassion. He describes the concentration on the mindfulness or through mindfulness of breathing. Something very fundamental and something that is just as much a practice for the Buddha as it would be for us. And yet often we think of it as a rather uh, sort of preliminary, sort of basic practice. We want to do something rather more advanced but I think it's through the breath, grounding ourselves in the breathing, that not only do we open ourselves to the possibility of deeper concentration, that in the tradition can be developed through the jhanas and so on, but also through to the development of insight and wisdom and understanding. It's grounded in the breath. And I think for us today also, this is a grounding in the body. For a culture that is so intellectual and cerebral and rational and saturated with information, it's, I feel, a, a great relief sometimes, although not easy, to return to the rhythm of the body. And anyone who's done this practice will also note that it's not just about observing a bellows action but actually you then become more and more sensitized, more and more intimate with the primary rhythm of your life. The, the rhythm of the breath, in a sense, reverberates through the entire organism. So that's one way we might begin to think of the 
idea of whatever arises ceases. There's another passage though, which again I think is a very central one in the canon, where we once again find exactly the su- we find exactly the same terms: samudaya, arising, and niroda, ceasing. And this is in a dialogue with um, a man called Kachanagota, who comes to the Buddha and says, "We say." Samaditi, Samaditi, usually translated as right view, right view. I don't like that translation particularly. Complete vision, complete vision. What is complete vision? Samaditi. And the Buddha replies, This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of there is and the notion of there is not. But for one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete intelligence, samapanya, there is no notion of there is not in regard to the world. And for one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete intelligence, there is no notion of there is in regard to the world. Everything is, Kachana, that's one dead end. Nothing is, Kachana, that is the other dead end. Without veering towards either of these dead ends, I teach the Dhamma by the middle way. Now, I'm aware that that the passage is somewhat dense and it needs to be a little bit unpacked. What he seems to be pointing to is that the primary categories of thought and language, it is, it is not, or in Aristotle's terms, something either is a or it is not a, the so-called law of the excluded middle, is inadequate to capture the fluid and the contingent arising and ceasing of life itself. In other words, if you are committed to looking for or trying to understand the nature of being, it is, or non-being, it is not, you will embark on a quest that will actually fail if you're committed to those, that way of thinking, to discover and experience the, the middle way, which means the experience of the fluid unfolding and passing and rising and ceasing of life itself. And again, I think the experience of the breath is a good example of this. We can certainly 
without any difficulty, talk of the in-breath and the out-breath. But when you begin to observe the breath, when you start paying careful attention to it, you realize there's no point at which you can say, here the breath begins, here the in-breath begins, here it stops. Here it begins, here it stops. Instead, you have an experience of a continuum. It's even more, I think, evident, say, in the waves of the ocean that arise and fall. Even a very philosophically-minded surfer bobbing up and down in his wetsuit in the freezing cold water. Again, something I don't quite understand where the pleasure in that lies. <laughs> Cannot, although he will be waiting for the big one, as they call it, the wave is not at any point demarcated by a line. Here it starts, there it stops. The language concepts are indispensable to our life, uh, to making sense of things, of participating in a social environment and so forth and so on. There's not an attempt to abandon language. But the danger with language is it can bewitch us, as Wittgenstein says. And the aim of philosophy, as he famously remarked, is to free the mind from the bewitchment of language. And I think here the Buddha is doing something very similar. He's pointing to the fact that language bewitches us. It tricks us. It fools us. It deceives us. It leads us to think that reality somehow corresponds to the categories of language. It is, it is not. There is, there is not. Being, non-being. And what awareness, meditation, uh, reflection begins to open up for us is an experience of life that is ineffable, that is not reducible to the categories of language. And in that sense, it's wordless. But it would be going way too far to then abandon language altogether. That would be another extreme. So the one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete intelligence, there's no sense of there is not. In other words, when things arise, when the breath arises, when the wave arises, you can't deny that something's going on. But when it ceases, when it vanishes, when it passes away, it's very difficult to say it is, it exists, it's gone. Now this passage is um, uh, important, I feel. I mean, this is not my own opinion. But this is the only passage in the canon that is cited by name by the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna. It's the only passage that he refers to by name. In fact, it's in chapter 15 of the Mulamadhyamaka Karika, the the verses from the center, and I'll read it out. Those who hold the view of self and other things and nothings 
fail to see the meaning of what the Buddha taught. Through understanding things and nothings, the Buddha rejected both there is and there is not in his discourse to Kachayana. And this is actually the canonical foundation for what has then evolved as the philosophy of emptiness. Emptiness does not mean uh, the, the uh, nothingness. In fact, it would be a total contradiction to think of it in that way. Emptiness, which I think is not the happiest word here, refers to the, the letting go of the categories of is and is not, being and non-being, self and other, thing and nothing. It's a middle way. It's a path that opens us up, therefore, to the sheer unfolding and passing of life itself, which we experience in our bodies, in our breath, in our experience of nature, in pretty much everything that we turn our attention to. Nagarjuna also famously says, the Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of views. Believers in emptiness are incurable. In other words, as soon as you set up the idea that emptiness is the ultimate truth of things, you've missed the point. As soon as you privilege emptiness as somehow more real or more true, then you've missed the point. Emptiness, as Nagarjuna points out, is a letting go of something. It's a dropping away of a certain way of thinking, a certain way of perceiving ourselves in the world, uh, a letting go of the insistence that language and concepts can accurately map experience. And therefore, an emptying rather than an emptiness, again, language is already bewitching us in the very word emptiness, an emptying of such a perspective, of such a holding on to ourselves that allows us to be totally open to the flow of life itself. I recently came across a couple of passages in which the same spirit as I think is found in, in, in these two texts is, fa is, is um, spoken by the French uh, essayist philosopher uh, Michel de Montaigne. And they're very beautiful. He says, Why do we give the name being? to this instant that is nothing but a flash of lightning in the infinite course of eternal night. And another passage. If, by chance, you apply your thought to wanting to seize its being, to grasp the being of mind, what it is, then that will be neither no more nor less than wanting to grab hold of water with your hand. 
Now, it's possible that Montaigne was actually distantly influenced by the Buddha's teaching. Montaigne was considered himself and was considered by his contemporaries and later French uh, thinkers like uh, Pascal to be a follower of Pyrrho of Elis, a Pyrrhonist. And Pyrrho of Elis was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, who accompanied Alexander to India and studied with the Indian sages. This is known from Greek histories. And came back to Greece and founded a school called Skepticism, which we still know about today. Again, I don't want to go down too much that, that digressive track, but I do think, I mean, it could well be that Montaigne simply came up with that idea through his own thinking, but it's also possible that he was influenced by Pyrrho, who may have been influenced by Buddhist thought. And I love these connections, these, these, these synchronicities within Western and Buddhist culture. It somehow realizes that they're not perhaps so different after all. Now the notion of, um, of, of the same idea as we find in the Kachanagota Sutta, we also find in another dialogue, which I'm going to conclude this talk with. And that's a dialogue with Vachagota, another wanderer, about uh, the nature of the self. And again, it's exactly the same idea. Vachagota approaches uh, the Buddha and he says, How is it, Mr. Gautama? Is there a self? And the Buddha remains silent. Then Vachagota asked, Then how is it, Master Gautama? Is there not a self? Again, the Buddha remained silent. Vachagota got up from his seat and went away. Then Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, said, Well, why didn't you say anything? And the Buddha said, If I'd answered, There is a self, that would have been siding with those who are eternalists. And if I had answered, there is not a self, that would have been siding with those who are nihilists. And again, the, the, you know, there is a self, there is not a self, is exactly the same words as there is and there is not in the other passage. Vachagota wants to try to pin Mr. Gautama down. Is there a self or is there not a self? Straightforward question, yes or no. And the Buddha doesn't say a word. And the reason he doesn't say a word is because if he'd chosen any of those options, he would have ended up either siding with those who say there is a self, it's eternal, or those who say there is no self. At all, there's nothing. Now, curiously, Buddhism is often presented as a doctrine of no self. That there is no self. So how does that avoid the extreme of nihilism? I don't think it does. I think it's a mistake. I don't think that's actually what the Buddha is saying. 
And here it's quite clear what the Buddha's not saying, as it were. But again, to say there is a self, to say there is not a self, we are slipping into the same trap. We're trying to reduce this fluid, contingent, unfolding experience to the dualistic categories of language. There is a self, there's not a self. We're not going to go into this now, but later in the week we'll look at how the Buddha did understand the nature of self. He doesn't understand it as something that exists in any sort of final or fixed way, nor does he understand it as something that doesn't exist. He understands the self as a project to be realized. In other words, as a process, as something that cannot be pinned down, but something that emerges, arises and ceases, arises and ceases. And this arising and ceasing is not just a repetitive pattern, but it's like the breath in a way. It's something that allows for a continuity through time, through an emergence of a person who defines herself through her acts. In other words, self is like a story. Self is like a process, an emergent and continuously evolving and adapting, um, I was going to say being, <laughs> creature, something that's created. So we'll come back to that later, but I hope that uh, what we've looked at today um, not only helps us find another perspective on our breathing meditation, but also opens us up to what I think is the rather refined and somewhat uh, subtle uh, philosophical uh, perspective that Mr. Gautama discovered. So it's now 11 o'clock. This is a time for uh, walking meditation. And again, we can apply these same reflections as we walk. The rising and placing of the feet. It's a similar sort of rhythm. And we'll meet back here at quarter to 12 for a sitting before lunch. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.